Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Zara Pabani and I'll be in the hot seat today. And we're going to be talking about mediation and the role it plays in family law. We're delighted to welcome our family law experts onto this podcast today, Rachel Oakes. Rachel is the co-founder of Family Mediation and Mentoring, a bespoke family mediation service. And Rachel is a trained and practicing family mediator herself, as well as sitting as a deputy district judge. Joanna Granfield from Mills and Reeve. Joe is a specialist financial and children lawyer and also a mediator and collaborative lawyer. And last but by no means least, Claire Filer, mediator and family lawyer here at Irwin Mitchell. Together, we're going to have an in-depth discussion on all things surrounding mediation and how mediation can be a very effective way to resolve your family dispute. Thank you guys for joining me today. Claire, I'd really like to start with you. You recently joined Irwin Mitchell and we're delighted to have you on board. You're going to be launching our actual mediation service. Tell me, why did you choose to train as a mediator? That's a great question, Zara. Um, As a family lawyer, I've worked uh, in this field for almost 20 years. I've I've been aware, obviously, over the course of that period of time of the way in which different ways of resolving family disputes have have changed. So whether that's arbitration or private FDRs or collaborative law or indeed mediation. So these are all ways in which we can help our clients and over the time that I've practiced, I've noticed a, a growing desire amongst those clients that I've worked with to look at different ways of resolving their disputes uh, and not ne- just necessarily through the traditional court process, which when I started out, that was the way in which everyone did it, really. And um, so I think mediation really appealed to me as a way that I could be involved in that in uh, terms of actively facilitating discussions between those clients that were separating and being able to provide them with information and signpost them towards the advice that they needed. I think there was almost a certain frustration with the court process as well over the the course of the last couple of years in particular Um, and I was starting to question whether that was always the right forum uh, for my clients and mediation just really appealed to me as a, a way of helping them um, in a different way than than that court route, which seemed to not be working so well. Absolutely. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head as well there, haven't you? It's all about helping people. It's all about giving people choices. And I think all, as lawyers, having training and having different strength can make us better as lawyers and it can make us add more value to clients. Rachel, let me come to you. You stepped completely away from being a traditional family lawyer and you set up your practice focusing solely on mediation. And I know when you were practicing, you were doing more mediation than you were doing anything else. Why have you done that? Uh, Yes, thank you, Zara. Well, um, COVID had something to do with that. I think COVID impacted us all, didn't it, to a certain extent? And it certainly helped me take a step back and just reevaluate what I wanted to do with the um, remaining years of my career. I was a specialist family lawyer for almost 30 years, so I'd almost sort of done done my bit and I was managing um, a large national team working very long hours. So I decided I was going to go on that holy grail of trying to create work-life balance. And so um, I thought about what is it that I really enjoy doing? 
Um, I really enjoy the law. I always have. I've specialised in the law since I did my degree, uh, which feels like a long time ago now. Uh, and I was very lucky that my uh, business partner, Claire, and I both sort of came to the point uh, at the same time that we were really enjoying doing the mediation work, uh, working in a different way and helping people stay out of court. And um, I also, at the same time, uh, successfully uh, got through to being appointed a deputy district judge. So now I have got uh, choices in terms of uh, mediation work and sitting as a deputy district judge. So I'm still involved in the law on the court side uh, and staying in touch with all of that. But I'm really enjoying working with couples and families to resolve their disputes. I think that's great. And, you know, Rachel, at the end of the day, you know, doing what you've done, it's all about if we can enjoy what we do, we're going to be better at it as well. And I know that you and Claire yeah. are really going guns on this successful practice, which, again, is helping so many people out there. Joe, firstly, some people have said to me it can be somewhat odd to include one of our competitors on an Irwin Mitchell podcast. But as you know, we see you guys at Mills and Reeve as our friends and our colleagues in the family law world. How important do you think it is that two medias, mediators get on personally? Isn't that going to be crucial for mediation to actually work, having that connection and that chemistry? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Sarah. Um, always I, a pleasure, Joe. always a pleasure. <laughs> I think that family lawyers, both those who mediate and those that don't, we need friends just like anybody else in any other professional community. And that's not just because we're nice people and like to be liked by other people, but also because clients need lawyers who can work constructively together to find them a resolution, full stop. In terms of mediators, well, just like family lawyers who aren't mediating or anybody else, they're professionals too. So I think that they will work and do work, and I certainly do work with whoever the clients would like me to work with. So I don't think it's crucial for two mediators necessarily to get on personally, but I do think it's crucial that there is mutual respect between two mediators working together. And that's the key thing. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong now, but there was somebody on the opposition bench who said, for example, about Margaret Thatcher when she left Parliament, that you wouldn't find many people there that liked her very much. But similarly, you wouldn't find very many people on the opposition benches that didn't fundamentally respect her. And that's really the key. So I think for mediators, it's two things. It's one that there has to be mutual respect with any other mediator that they're working with. But I also find it can be really, really helpful when co-mediating that the two mediators have complementary skills and complementary backgrounds. So, for example, a lawyer mediator working with somebody from a therapeutic background can be really, really helpful and valuable for clients in mediation. That's really helpful. I like your analogy with Maggie Thatcher, actually. That's really interesting. And I do think the respect piece is what I've picked up on there. And I think that's something that will resonate with clients. The professionals all respecting each other and the law and their clients, whether it be your client or the other client, I think that's going to speak volumes and help you move forward in your case. So thank you for that, Joe. Claire, coming back to you. How far do you think we've moved on really in the world of family law? I mean, when I started out over 20 years ago, we're all showing our age now, people. But when I started out a long time ago, I found that lawyers paid lip service to mediation. I mean, maybe some, some still do. It was an American thing. It was new. It was never going to take off in the UK. But now it seems to be taking centre stage. But is that true? Is it hype? Is it media? Is it reality? I suppose with, you know, Rachel here today shows it is a reality. She set up a business focusing solely on it. What's your view, Claire? 
Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think it is um, a reality that the way in which mediation is perceived in the family law community has changed. Um, I agree, you know, as you say, we're, we're showing our ages a bit, but I, I've unbelievably been qualified for more than uh, almost 20 years. Um, and I think initially it was thought of as something that some people did, you referred the odd client, but it wasn't really something that lots of people did. Um, I think things have moved on a lot since then. And I think it's not just because it's being actively encouraged by the government and the media um, through schemes like the Family Mediation Voucher Scheme. I think clients come to family lawyers and people that work in this business wanting a range of services. They want choice, they want to be involved in the decision making themselves um, and mediation is seen as a more cost effective way of resolving family disputes and in the right circumstances with the right mediator and genuinely engaged participants it is a more cost effective way than going through the court process in in many uh, instances so i think it, it's also an effective way of resolving disputes that don't really need court involvement um, like, for example, day to day arrangements for children. Sometimes there are disputes, complex disputes, which do require that court involvement. But I think there are lots of circumstances in which that isn't necessary. And more and more people are, are turning to mediation to deal with those sorts of cases. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. That's helpful. Rachel, I'm going to throw you a swerve ball and ask you something a little bit different. We've been talking about age and experiences and the wealth of that within all these guys here on this podcast today but our media what is the age range of mediators do you have to be really experienced and have lots of years under your belt to get a, to be a mediator what about the you know the the younger people who are getting divorced do they want somebody more their age and stage can you help me with that Rachel? Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't think there are any age restrictions. I actually think it's about the mediator feeling comfortable with whatever issue it is that they're being asked to help a couple with. And I think you're absolutely right, Zara. I think that there are younger couples out there who might prefer a mediator who's more within their age range than coming to some old fuddy-duddy like like me. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say but, that. I wouldn't say that, but, Rachel. Uh, but, but there again, I think there is something to be said to the complex issues that can be involved in cases. And uh, mediators are trained to self-select. And so if they're talking with a couple or an individual and they really don't think that they're going to be able to add value, maybe because they recognise they haven't got the experience or something's particularly difficult or they haven't dealt with it before, then what's really good about the mediation community is that we're all sort of members of local area groups where we have um, someone that effectively acts as our mentor and you can go to that person you can say I think this might be a bit out of my depth is there somebody else in the group who you think might be better suited and I think that as Claire was touching on there are some issues where what you want from the mediator is literally somebody to facilitate a conversation maybe because communication between a couple has broken down and then there are the more complex financial issues where you're trying to unravel the finances for a couple going through a divorce to help them look at what the future is going to be like and how are they going to share their assets. And maybe those are the sorts of cases where a more sure. experienced mediator might be able to help. And I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to throw more swerve balls your way. What about 
cultural aspects of cases? You know, is there enough diversity in the mediating world and the mediators that we have up and down the country? Is there enough diversity and how do you deal with cultural aspects which can really matter to clients? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, it's improved. I think that there are now many mediators out there and there's a good network of communication between mediators. If you're trying to find somebody who could help with maybe a specific issue that a couple has raised, that the mediator they've gone to hasn't got any personal experience of themselves. But that is one of the things that should always be covered in initial MIAM meetings. So in mediation, before any couple's taken into joint meetings, they both have the opportunity of a private MIAM meeting. And in those meetings, that's where that sort of discussion would be had. And people can tell us if they've got any particular issues they want to have addressed or whether actually maybe they're concerned that if they were talking to me, I'm not the right mediator, but do I know anyone who might be able to help or be a bit more focused on uh, understanding their religion or cultural issues. So it's something we're very aware of as mediators when we're doing the initial Mayan meetings, Zara. That's really helpful. I think those are really important aspects for our clients and for our listeners. Yeah, so thank you for that. So. Joe, we finally moved to no-fault divorce in the UK. It feels like we've been waiting for it forever. I mean, it's fantastic. As a result of that, do you think we are moving more in a direction of more cases want to go to mediation. There were so many people waiting for this no-fault divorce. Is there a sea change happening in the UK around moving forward more amicably by virtue of mediation or other, other ways to resolve your case without going to court? What's your view? I think we're certainly seeing more cases um, being resolved outside of court and through um, alternative means of dispute resolution. And the interesting thing, for example, now is that we've dropped alternative. So it's now dispute resolution, which I think is a really interesting illustration as to how mindsets are changing. Um, I'm not sure that it's quite a sea change. That's probably a bit strong. I think it's more of an evolution, but it's an evolution that is if an evolution can gather pace, that's what it's doing. Um, I don't think no fault divorce was a catalyst for this, but I see it as part of that evolution. I think no fault divorce is also really helping and supporting with that direction of travel. So from a practical perspective, we're no longer having to speak with clients at the outset about well, whose fault was it engaging in the blame game, having arguments that are um, essentially meaningless in terms of a financial outcome or an outcome as to what's going to happen in terms of relationships for the children. That's now gone. Um, so it's it's the focus really more on the future and settlement and what are we going to do to get everybody to move on from this terrible situation that nobody wanted to be in, but in which they find themselves. Um, I think what no fault divorce is also quite helpful in doing is it's, it's sort of seen as a clear message from the government and from the court system that this is the approach that we expect people to take now. We're looking at solutions, we're forward focused, we're not looking back and looking to blame. And I think that that is sort of a, a direction of travel and showing people when they're coming in, this is what we expect of you when you move forward to deal with the issues that arise out of your separation. And I think that's really helpful and will continue to support this, this movement away from court system and litigation. Thank you for that, Joe. I think the really important aspect of what you've talked about there is evolution. I think change is really important and whatever we do, getting better for our clients and doing more for our clients. So the family law world evolving in this way, I think is incredibly important. So thank you so much for that. 
Claire, let's go in a slightly different direction. Some might say the world as we know it has changed dramatically and so has the way we work, live our lives and deal with our finances. Are the financial affairs of people far more complex these days, which is going to make it harder to mediate? So, you know, it's one thing looking at the value of a house and a pension, but what about valuing and identifying other assets that are not so tangible? Cryptocurrency, digital assets. Can we really deal with complex assets such as these in mediation? So I think the short answer to your question is yes, absolutely. Um, mediators have been dealing with uh, cases involving complex financial assets um, for some time. And in some ways, these crypto assets, digital assets, are just a, another form of asset that we need to get our heads around. I think the difficult thing is that uh, one of the things that's really important about mediation is that everyone has to have the right information to make their decisions. And so where there are more complex assets, such as cryptocurrency or digital assets, it can be trickier to get that right information in place. But where there are complex assets in a mediation, the participants might just need to go away and get information about them. Mediators are trained to signpost them towards the right professionals. So whether that's tax advice or, as you say, a surveyor's valuation for an unusual property, rather than simply going away and getting a number of market appraisals. We used, for example, to pointing them towards a forensic accountant that might be able to value shares in a business. And all of those things don't mean that people can't go to a mediator and use them to help them resolve their family dispute. So the important thing is making sure you know what they are, who you need to ask uh, or signpost the clients towards to get that information and help them with what sort of questions they might want to ask about it. Um, another thing that could be quite useful where there are complex assets is to think about something like an early mutual evaluation. So where there are difficult assets, the participants might find it less easy to reach a decision themselves. And so thinking about as a mediator, um, whether something like going to uh, a barrister to give them an indication of that outcome might be a really useful thing for them. Um, so I don't think that that's a, a barrier to uh, resolving a dispute in this way. I think you make a really important point there, Claire. Mediation is just not always just about the mediator and the two people. You can bring in other people. And if there are complexities in the same way that you would do in a traditional approach, you can bring in other people, jointly instruct people and find a way forward. I think that's really important. Now, Rachel, I believe that people still confuse mediation with some form of counselling, whereas you and I know these things are worlds apart. And as well as launching our mediation service here at Owen Mitchell, we've also now onboarded a counsellor for our clients. I'm curious, though, in mediation, so when you're mediating, you may well identify that one or both of the parties could do with some help by way of therapy or counselling. Is it within your role and your remit as a mediator to propose this to them? How does that work? Have you come across this? Uh, yes, Zara, we do come across it. Um, I think that it's, first of all, fantastic that you've brought a counsellor into your practice as part of your team. And team and the word evolution that you picked up and the, that Joanne was using, I think are really important 
um, issues for the world of mediation at the moment, because if people come to us and they confuse mediation with some form of counselling, again, as I've touched on in the initial Mayan meeting, we would pick up on that. And if they aren't ready to move forward to talk about separation or divorce issues and what they're actually considering is whether they may still be able to reconcile or rebuild their relationship, we will signpost them to the right people. And I think that that's actually a little bit more where the world of separation, divorce and family disputes are heading. And I think the wise firms are the ones that are surrounding themselves with people who can help in a bit more of a team approach. I don't see mediation in a vacuum. I don't see people coming to mediation to the exclusion of everything else. I think that what's been fantastic with mediation is that it has evolved and if counsellors need to be involved or people need a period of time for counselling great they might actually alongside mediation need some family therapy and there's people that we will recommend to that but it's really important that people don't think that they come into mediation and that's to the exclusion of legal advice as well. I think sometimes people think that and that they can't talk to their lawyer. We will encourage people to get legal advice if we think that they need it. And I think that the whole arena of people who are separating and divorcing is starting to work a little bit more towards I need my lawyer I'd like to try mediation maybe there's a discrete issue we might need to look at arbitration maybe it's even collaborative practice which I know Joanna is qualified in as well and I think it's about surrounding couples with the right professionals at the right time who are going to take them on this journey help them through the stage that they're at and be very future focused and try and get everybody through to the other side with as little damage, heartache and stress as possible. You're so right. It's a journey. It's a journey for the clients and we carry, we go on the journey with them. And it's crucial to have all the right trusted advisors around them, as you say, from from the world of therapy, from the business community, from the legal world, from the mediation world. It, and, and it's making sure that clients are aware. And this is what this podcast is about today. It's about raising awareness. Um, Joe, I want to give you the last word today. You know what we've said, you're one of our friends and competitors and to show respect to you and, and the firm of Mills and Reeve. Tell me, what do you think is next for the world of mediation? What's the future? What, in your view, does that look like? First of all, you're too kind, Zara, but thank you for that. Um, I think the future looks like um, mediation as being the first port of call for the majority of families that are going through divorce and separation. There will always be cases where it's not appropriate, but I think they will become increasingly small as the mediation approaches and the expertise of those that are embarking and engaging on it and offering that as a service becomes more um, experienced and sophisticated. I think it will become the new normal for so many families that, you know, words like mediation, like dispute resolution, like family therapy will become part of the lexicon of ordinary families in this country. I think there'll be more court directed mediation. So there will also be more sophisticated models. We have hybrid mediation already. We have lawyer assisted mediation. Rachel spoke about the use of family therapists and counsellors and so on as part of that that sort of group of services that help families to get through this process. Um, 
And finally, I think that the expectation will be that issues arising out of divorce and separation are to be resolved by agreement and discussion and outside of a court arena. Um, it will no longer be accepted or normal or not raise an eyebrow for people to go through a really torturous, really expensive, really emotionally draining and devastating um, process to get to a financial resolution and a divorce. That will become not only not the expectation, but that will be looked upon as being really with increasing horror, as it rightly should be. And that can only be a good thing for everybody, I think. That is if a... I could just if I could add to that. Zara, please do. Well, please do. I, I think. I think that um, it has caused some concern that in in recent uh, publications, but also recent cases, this um, transparency project and people going to court having their cases reported. And so if you were going to court and you knew your neighbour was going to be able to find out everything and family and friends and relatives, I do think that one of the real benefits of mediation is the privacy and the confidential, you know, the confidential side to it. I think that that's something that gets um, a bit lost along the way sometimes. And as Joe just touched on, uh, lots of evolution with mediation now means that the hybrid model of mediation means that people, if they're worried about coming to mediation by themselves, they can come with their lawyer. And so, they can stay out of court, they can have legal advice and support, and it can be part of this sort of future modelling of what's the right team to help people with the dispute that they've got at any particular moment in time that they need help with. Thank you for that. Confidentiality, privacy and support. What a way to end on. That is what clients want, need to help them resolve their issues. Thank you so much, guys, for coming onto this podcast and for your wisdom today. Thank you for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Goodbye for now. <laughs>